everyone, welcome back to the show. So this week, I have in front of me the book of the week, Kobe Bryant, The Mamba Mentality, How I Play. And I bought this book actually right when Kobe had passed away. And um, as I take a nice gulp of coffee, you know, and I think a lot of times we we don't appreciate uh, people who are really successful and trying to really understand um, how they got to where they are, right? And who would imagine, right? That's that's the beauty about books. Like, you know, they're some of the greatest people in the world, um, you know, whether it's uh, presidents, uh, leaders, business people, sports, you know, athletes, you know, they've actually written books where they've distilled all their knowledge, everything they did to get to where they are into a book to, you know, to teach other people how to do it, right? Imagine that. You can read a book like that, right? It's possible, you know, but so many people don't go ahead and do that, right? They want the quick fix, but, you know, this is the value of knowledge. I mean, look, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. There's a book uh, on there uh, that costs $7. It's $7. It's like a little bit more than a co- cup of coffee, um, called Made in America by Sam Walton. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, one of the most uh, uh, successful entrepreneurs in the, you know, in, of our time. But you know, you can definitely argue that he was he's up there in the top five. You know, he wrote this book on his deathbed, explaining how he started this multi-billion-dollar business. How many MBA students have read it? So, anyways. Enough of that. Let's get into the book. So the book, it's a beautifully uh, designed book. It's very visual. You know, so the whole book, it's glossy. It's got uh, a lot of photos of Kobe Bryant and, you know, throughout his time. But, you know, this podcast is actually, um, I want to distill some key learnings for you, key learnings for you from this book that I think any of you can walk away with. And let's start with the first thing. When I'm opening the book here and I go to the contents, What's interesting is, you know, you have a foreword by Paul Gasol, you have an introduction by his coach, Phil Jackson. Um, you know, you have facts and figures towards the end and chronology of his, of his uh, uh, time. But from pa- pages 21 to 95, it's dedicated to the process. 95 to 202, the craft. That's it. That's really the whole book right there. And let me uh, start off by telling you a little bit about the process, right? Now, when it comes to the Mamba mentality, Kobe Bryant writes that he initially thought the phrase Mamba mentality was just kind of this catchy hashtag that he could start on Twitter, you know, something that was witty and memorable. Um, And then it took off um, and it came to symbolize a lot more. And for him, the mindset of a Mamba mentality isn't about seeking a result. It's more about the process, the process of getting to that result, about the journey and the approach and really a way of life. And he thought that this was what was most important in all endeavors, you know, was having this kind of mentality, right? And, you know, that's that's a big thing. You know, my, my late and great mentor, Christopher Sells, who is a legend in, uh, in sales, um, of course, you know, that's a simulation just winking at us right there, right? A, a legendary sales, sales exec whose last name is Sells, you know, he talked about this, which was, what's your process? What's the discipline? How do you wake up every morning? Do you just wake up and roll out of bed, get in the car and, you know, with no plan and just head to work? Or do you do you do things with intention? Do you have a plan, right? I think this is the this is the thing. You know, if you look at some of the great, let's say, entrepreneurs, right? Look at Elon Musk, right? Look at what Steve Jobs did with Apple and Next Computer and Pixar, right? 
they had a process of how they achieved those things, right? And so Kobe really dedicates a lot to that process. And so here are a couple of things that I'm thumbing through the pages right now. And again, beautifully designed. Uh, and, and the nice thing is that for those of you who, you know, um, are, are just getting back to reading, you're not ready to pick up a, a heavy novel, but you want something that's kind of, you know, fun to read and has some visuals. This is a great one because a lot of the um, writing in here, they're kind of written like short blogs. So talking about process, here's here's one of the things that he, he, he talks about. His, he says, my routine changed over time, but my approach didn't. I always tried to train and prepare intelligently, but as I got older, my pre and post game routine evolved. When you're younger, you work on explosive things, and as you get older, you focus shifts to preventative measures. That's all Paul for the course. The only aspect that can't change, though, is that obsession. You have to enter every activity every single time with a want and need to do it to the best of your ability. And, you know, this is something that is super, super important. And we often forget, you know, if you think about, for many of you who are, let's say, entrepreneurs or in business, you know, or in business, right, you have a career. How do you approach your career like a, like a professional world-class athlete in terms of your training? You know, let me give you a, a specific example. So for me, when I was younger, uh, as, as a salesperson, as a marketer, you know, a lot of what I focused on was tactics, right? You know, because I, I didn't have a whole lot of influence on the largest strategy of a company. I focused a lot on tactics, right? Things that I can do in the short term, things that are activities, things that I might be able to do on a daily basis in terms of, you know, an email I would write, maybe a marketing campaign, um, you know, something like that, right? But then as I was focused on the tactics, I didn't wait to take the role of a you know a head of marketing or head of growth start learning about it. So during the day I would practice tactics. I was I was you know failing and learning. But then at night you know I would come home. I would just dive into these books. I would read all these books from 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 great strategists, great marketers. You know people like uh, like Al Rees. Al Rees. You know he wrote the Twenty Two Immutable Laws of Marketing. You know I would I would read this book and I would pretend I would pretend that I would be the head of marketing or, or, or the head or a CEO of a company. And it's like, okay, you know, what's the strategy? And I would, I would go through, okay, law number one, I would have to go through the law, law of leadership, right? What are we going to be a leader of? Law number two, the law of category. Okay, if we're going to start a company, it's probably strategically sound for us to own a category. We don't want to go into a category that already exists and try and compete. But how do we do something kind of like Netflix, right? How do we make our own streaming movies and own that category? right? That's what I would focus on, you know, and so, you know, over time, that routine changed, you know, so now I'm the head of, I've been the head of growth at two different uh, companies, you know, so my routine isn't so much focused on tactics, although that's something that I'm a practitioner of, and I'm a big believer of every day, but my focus is more, you know, more on strategy. How do I elevate? How do I build a team, right? So my, my routines, they change, right? You know, but in terms of my approach, that did not change. And what I mean by approach is that, of course, you know, like my approach to marketing um, and, and sales and everything, those, those of course change. What I'm talking about is my individual approach, right? I wake up every day, you know, first very excited. You know, I, 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 I get myself up in the morning. I, I Sometimes I slap my hands together as like, this is gonna be a great day, right? And I, I, I very much like an athlete, I actually start to pretend that there's people cheering me on, right? And in a way, you know, at a company, that's what it's like, right? You know, Elon Musk, 
when he, um, you know, talks about, um, you know, about companies, he said, you know, he has to wake up and realize that if there's certain things that he doesn't take care of, like the company's going to die, right? And so it's it's this routine of, you know, every day, what's your discipline, right? Do you Do you come to work with the best version of yourself, ready to tackle everything, ready to find a way to do things better, to try new things that may not work and fail, but then say, hey, you know what? What did I get out of this? How can I make this better, right? That's the mindset of a champion, right? Those are the routines. And again, um, you know, I'm going to get back into the book in a moment, but this is what I tell young people all the time, especially people, those of you who are in your 20s, you're listening to this, listen to my advice here. Your 20s, this is the most important decade of your life because this sets up the rest of your life. So the habits and disciplines you've formed now are crucial and critical to your success. And I'm not trying to motivate you. I'm trying to get you motivated about discipline, right? There's a difference, right? Motivation is fine, but you know what? You know, you can wake up one day and you're in a bad mood. You're hungry. Maybe, you know, you, you feel down, right? You don't feel motivated anymore. But discipline, and that's kind of what is at the heart of what Kobe's talking about. Discipline is the thing, right? That's the thing that gets you going, right? Um, so let's let's dive in a little bit more into the process. So, you know, here's some other things that Kobe talks about. Um, so here's something that uh, you know I have to admit caught me by surprise. There's a there's a a, a section called reading is fundamental, right? And here's what Kobe writes. He, he says, I made a point of reading the referee's handbook. The referee's handbook. The, this guy read the referee's handbook. Why? One of the rules that I gleaned from it was that each referee has a designated slot where he was supposed to be on the floor. And if the ball, for instance, is in one place, then the referees have to be all in a certain area on the court assigned to them. When they do that, it creates dead zones, areas on the floor where they can't see certain things. I learned from those zones where, you know, or I learned where those zones were and I took advantage of them. I would get away with holds, travels, and all sorts of minor violations simply because I took the time to understand the official limitations. So th this is amazing, right? This guy went so far to read the, the rules and, and, uh, of the referee, and, and if I can pat myself on the back a little bit, I have to say I'm really proud of my younger my younger self because I, I did something very similar to this when I was in medical device uh, marketing. Now I'm in the SaaS world, so the there the compliance and you're not dealing with the FDA. But when I was a young marketer, I realized very quickly. The reason why med device companies are terrible at marketing is because you have these regulations, you have the FDA, so you know rather than have any risk, you just try not to deal with it, right? And so I went and actually read the FDA draft guidance on marketing and social media use, right? It's a pretty dense document, but I read it to understand like, okay, the FDA is, are the referees, so what can I technically get away with? And this is where I discovered one of the most valuable, valuable tactics that turned into a strategy. And that was this. In, in, in um, healthcare, you have these different laws like Stark Law and Sunshine Act, which pretty much say like it really limits you. Because back in the day, pharma companies and, and device companies were able to buy doctors lavish gifts, take them to expensive dinners, all these things. And, and the FDA ha has prohibited that. Like you can't do it. And if you take a doctor even to a dinner, like let's say a, $10 lunch, you have to document all these things, right? 
And so when I thought about this, I, I, I thought about physicians. I said, well, what's really valuable to a physician? Like a physician makes pretty good money. Did, did, would they, are they going to be moved by a lunch or anything? No, that's something that every other company can do. Uh, what if the, this law didn't exist? Can I buy them lavish gifts? Well, maybe, but like there's going to be another company that just has, has more money. And then I realized that there was something that was more valuable than any of those things to them that the FDA had literally no draft guidance on because it's not none of it was it was illegal, and that was the FDA cannot prevent me or a salesperson in my company from engaging with a physician in a thoughtful way on social media. Right now, many of you kind of may have rolled your eyes and be like, "Well, who who cares about that?" Well, let me tell you, think about the. The, the, uh, the principles of persuasion, there are six of them, right? If you go look at uh, Robert Cialdini's work, one of them is reciprocity, which is a powerful one, right? Reciprocity, I do something nice for you, you're going to do something nice for me. So what I implemented, uh, I first did this at Patron Medical, was going and finding physicians on LinkedIn and Twitter, and then engaging with their posts and tweets. I would leave thoughtful comments. I would reshare their work. Sometimes I would find a physician who, let's say, did a, just did a recent publication. Right? And of course, those things go on the journals and you know, physicians aren't good at marketing. So I would go and take their publication and I would make this beautiful graphic or, or even a banner, like a picture of them, a, a title, you know, and then summarize it, right? So that developed a lot of cognitive load when it came to reciprocity, and guess what? They, as a result, became interested in me. And then as they became interested in me, they learned about my company. As they learned about my company, they learned about my product. And so after even a week or two of me just doing some simple retweets and engagements, when I reached out to have a meeting with big physicians, division heads of, of very uh, large academic hospitals, they took the meeting. So the point is that, yeah, reading is fundamental because here's the thing about reading. Not everybody does it. So there's all this gold, all these treasures that lay, you know, that that are waiting for you in these books, you know, written by your ancestors, right? Our ancestors, great people from the past, and even people like, you know, whether it's the FDA or something, who've written the rules of the game, right? If you learn the rules of the game, you can learn the rules that don't exist, that you can take advantage of. Your competitors haven't taken advantage. Even if you're, look, if you're a college student, right? There's some rules that, that don't exist and you may not be aware of that actually help you get a great job. Imagine that, right? So reading is fundamental. This is why I continue to read and I continue to read broadly. Look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former medical student that went into healthcare, you know, first med device and surgical robotics, now I'm in SAS, and I'm reading a book by a basketball player. Why? Because if I find someone who accomplished something great in their life, right, professionally, there's something worth learning. So let's continue kind of with this with this uh, theme of, um, of mentality. So one of the other uh, areas, again, this is still part of the process chapter. He, he writes, uh, and it's a picture of him and LeBron on Team USA, and it says, I always aimed to kill the opposition. And he writes, the main thing LeBron and I discussed was that con- what was what constitutes a killer mentality. He watched how I approached every single practice and I constantly challenged him and the rest of the guys. I remember there was one half where we were messing around. I came into the locker room at halftime and asked the guys in a less PG manner, manner what in the hell we were doing. In the second half, 
LeBron responded in a big way. He came out with a truly dominant mindset, and I've seen him lead that way ever since. So, you know, think about that killer mentality, right? And even for some of you, you might be a marketing associate. You might, you might be like a secretary. You might just be, you might feel like you're a nobody in your company, but it, you don't have to be, you know, the CEO of a company to start having this killer mentality. People notice those things. People uh, uh, are, are drawn to it and they respect it, right? That doesn't mean you don't have to have fun, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But... Again, what's that killer mentality? Do you wake up every morning and, and find a way to motivate and push yourself, right? Or do you wait around for your next competitor to come out and then that lights a fire under your ass, you know? That's the difference between this killer mentality. Again, these are all habits, right? These are habits. They're habits of the mind. You know, you can adopt these things anytime you want. You can start doing this tomorrow, right? And developing this killer mindset. You know, let me give you another example of a killer mindset. And this is something that... Um, that Michael Jordan did. Michael Jordan is has actually lied about something for for a lot of his career. If you watched um, the Last Dance, this great docu series by ESPN, you know um, Michael. Uh, my, there's one game where Michael Jordan references like s- some player uh, uh, insulted him, and that was the that was the thing that lit a fire in him and made him score all you know I don't know how many points that game and win. And then they talked to that player, and he said. No, I never told him anything. So what was Michael Jordan doing? Michael Jordan imagined in his head that this guy was talking shit, that he he told Michael, like he insulted him and said, like, you know, you're not going to be able to do this. And Michael Jordan did this throughout his career. He was always looking for signals. That's what he, he described. I was looking for signals, right? And, and what he looks for is signals of people who said that he couldn't do it. When he was... Uh, uh, a high school student, he got cut. He didn't make his, uh, I think, junior varsity team or varsity team. And then that that was a, a thing that lit a fire in him to come back and make the varsity squad. Then when he was trying to go to college, he actually loved the University of Virginia. He was dying to go there. They rejected him. That's how he ended up at North Carolina. And when he was at North Carolina, he used that to fuel him all the time. When he started the Bulls, the Bulls were a terrible team. Again, same thing. So he's always, always looking for signals. For me, you know, I, I took a lot of value in that because I noticed that sometimes some of my best work came out when I was told, whether by people in my company or outside, that something wasn't possible or I wasn't good enough, right? Or, or, or if something failed, that you know, and that would drive me. And so these days, sometimes I would just imagine random people, you know, somebody, let's say, competitors in my industry, who might be, let's say, laughing. At, at, at a strategy I implement or saying like, oh, this little company, they're not going to do anything. We're just going to buy them up. It just drives me, right? So how do you do that with yourself, right? And maybe not, maybe that's not something for everybody. But again, you know, in my opinion, however you want to motivate yourself to be disciplined, you got to do it because success to be like, you know, wildly successful is a very, very uncomfortable process. Uh, nothing about it is, is, is comfortable, um, because it's none of it's natural, right? And something something that I want to play, actually, and I, I recorded this uh, last night. This is an audio uh, of Elon Musk talking about the process of starting a company. So just listen to this. Uh, I think that a lot of times people think like creating companies 
going to be fun. I would say it's not. It's really not that fun. I mean, there are periods of fun, and there are, there are periods of where it's, where it's just awful. And particularly if you're the CEO of the company, you actually have a distillation of all the worst problems in the company. There's no point in spending your time on things that are going right. So you only spend on things on your time on things that are going wrong. And and there are things that are going wrong that other people can't can't take care of. So you have like the worst. You have a filter for the crappiest problem in the company, <laughs> the most pernicious and painful problem. So I wouldn't say it's it's. It, I think you have to feel quite compelled to do it, um, and have a, a fairly high pain threshold. And there's a friend of mine who who says like starting a company is like staring into the abyss and and eating glass. There's some truth to that. The staring into the abyss part is that you're going to be constantly facing the the um, extermination of the company. Because uh, most, most startups fail. Uh, it's like 90 percent, arguably 99 percent of, of startups fail. So, uh, so, so you, you, that, that's the staring into the abyss part. You're constantly saying, "Okay, this, if, if if I don't get this right, the company will die." And and then the eating glass part is, you've got you've got to do, you've got to do the problems. You've got to you got to work on the problems that the company needs you to work on, not the problems you want to work on. And, and so that the, that's you end up working on problems that, that uh, you'd really wish you weren't working on. And so that's, that's the eating glass part. Um, and that goes on for a long time. So again, you know, as, as Elon puts it, you know, starting a company is like, you know, looking into the abyss and eating glass, right? It's daunting. It's not fun. And, you know, there's a bit of um, maturity in, in what he just said, which is, you know, especially when you're the CEO of a company, um, and I don't think, again, you don't have to be a CEO of a company to to adopt this mindset, which is in order for the company to survive, you have to work on problems that you, you don't, you have to deal with problems and you want to, you have to work on things that you don't, you don't want to work on, right? It's a very uncomfortable thing, right? You know, like, look, I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable here. You know, one of the things that in any company I have to work on is getting leads, like lead generation. I, I it, part of me, I don't, I'm not crazy about it. Because it's, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's it, it, if you do it the wrong way, it forces you to take shortcuts in terms of how do I just get people to sign up and give me their email, I'll hand that off to sales, versus kind of, you know, the more, you know, the, the, the part that takes a lot of time and work, which is category design, developing a strong brand in, a, in the marketplace, those things, those are things that fuel the uh, legion, but it doesn't happen over time. But then I realized that if I don't, you know, do this sort of uncomfortable thing that I'm not particularly crazy about, which is, you know, generating, generating more, you know, more and more leads and quality ones, the company could die. And that's actually very true. You know, if I don't do my job, my company will fucking die, right? There's, there's no question about that. Because if I can't generate leads, my head of sales and his team uh, can't, close those leads and convert them into a sale and if they can't convert those into a sale you know we don't have people who are adopting the product if people don't adopt the product then you know we don't make enough revenue and then over time like that's how that's how a company fails and dies right so to sort of wrap up uh there's one last thing and this is a story about kobe bryant and michael jordan and it's titled a teaching moment and Kobe mentions, uh, writes off by saying, my balance as a young player is off. And it's this photo where Michael Jordan is posted up with his back to Kobe and Kobe's leaning forward with his elbow on Mike's hip and he's, you know, trying to get to the ball. And 
Kobe writes, look at the dichotomy between us, starting with a posture. Michael is standing straight from the waist up. He's not leaning in any in either direction, and because of that, he is balanced and centered. He is in control of his body and the play. Compare all that to my defense. Now, I'm using my forearm to thrust weight into his back, just like they teach it. Unfortunately, that's about all I'm doing right. I'm leaning forward, which is a major no-no, putting too much pressure on him. That alone, by dint of gravity, causes me to be off balance. As a result, one move by Michael, one decisive spin right or faint left, would throw me off and give him room to either shoot or spin off me. This defense is definitely not good. It's no bueno. And then he writes, Thankfully, I actually saw this photo back in 1998, and after studying it, I corrected my posture and balance. After that, it was a lot harder to operate against me in the post. So think about that, that Kobe Bryant was, again, you, you know, you call, you know, he talks about obsession, right? And I would take it even further and say that it's a possession, possession by an idea, right? Which he saw a photo and like, you know, any other basketball player may have just looked at the photo and just been like, okay, cool, whatever, I'm guarding Michael Jordan. Great, that's that's amazing. He studied a photo and from that took this incredibly valuable lesson that elevated his game, right? It's that level of attention to detail and it's it's not even attention to detail. It's obsession and possession, right? Because when you become obsessed with something, again, success is a very uncomfortable process, you find every single way to refine what you're doing, to make it better, to have an advantage. You know, reading the you know referee's handbook, looking at photos, right? You know, having that mentality. That's why, you know, this book, I thought it was a great book because it shows you the process and craft that this world-class athlete, this legendary basketball player had to get to where he wanted to go. And you can take these lessons and distill them and translate them to your own life. I don't care whether you're um, a CEO of a company or a college student, you know, you might be a nanny, you might be, uh, uh, you know, a sales associate, whatever it is, you know, you don't have to be great to start, but you got to start to be great. And I think that's the big thing. So that's your book of the week, Kobe Bryant, The Mamba Mentality, How I Play. It's a hardcover. You can get it on Amazon. And uh, if you haven't already, please be sure, subscribe to this podcast, give it, give it, uh, you know, five stars, leave a review. Those things, you know, always help get this podcast discovered. And for those of you who don't know, um, I actually have a YouTube channel where I do great uh, book reviews, very short ones. And you know, go through the uh, illustrations in the book and everything. It's called the you know Mind Loom with Omar M. Khatib. Um, so be sure to subscribe there. Leave me a comment. Shoot me a message if there are any books you want me to review. So as always, that's your book of the week. Happy Wisdom Wednesday, everybody, and uh, I will see you soon.